the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Free from debt, first-time investing, retirement planning, and so much more. We are the Biz 1440 KYCR Golden Valley. With SRN News, I'm Bob Agnew in Washington. China has named the country's next premier a close confidant of top leader Xi Jinping. The story of this Congress is the story of Xi Jinping shoring up his already considerable grip on power. And the latest step has been the appointment of the new Premier. Many were surprised when Li Chang was put into this number two position. That's the BBC's Stephen McDowell. Representative Bill Hazenga is leading the Republican attack against the Democrats' environment, social and governance standards for investment fund managers. We know that the decisions that are being made uh, are, by, are being driven for, for political reasons and for social reasons, uh, not for investment reasons. Hazenga says that's fundamentally a violation of fund managers' fiduciary responsibility. More on these stories at srnews.com. What's your legacy? When it's your turn to depart this earth, what will you leave behind? Whether it's a lot or a little, you certainly don't want to leave a mess. Tune in to this week's Money Matters with Alan Mike as they'll be discussing your legacy issues, the tough ones, the situations that cause problems with estate plans, and how to avoid them. So make sure you listen to Money Matters with Alan Mike, 2 p.m. Sunday on The Biz 1440, or call them now with your questions at 855-231-6010. Dr. Gorka here, and I want to talk to you for a minute about 100% drug-free Relief Factor. I've been taking Relief Factor for years now to help me deal with pain in my body. My wife takes it as well. The reason we tell everyone uh, we know about it is simple. We found it really works to help our bodies fight off the inflammation that causes aches and pains. Whether it's the pain of injuries you've sustained or just the natural pains from the mileage over the years, Relief Factor can help. I've never looked back. Almost 70% of the more than half a million people who have tried Relief Factor end up ordering more. That's because it works for them the way it works for me. Isn't it time for you to get out of pain? Your first step to becoming pain-free should be to order the three-week quick start for the discounted price of only $19.95. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF to find out more about this offer. That's relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF. Feel the difference. The Ramsey Show. I don't want to be the little pig in the straw house anymore. I'm going to get my crap together. I'm going to get out of debt and have an emergency fund. I'm going to be the little pig in the brick house so when the wolf comes and blows, I don't have credit card debt. I don't have student loan debt. I don't have car payments. I'm under control and I got a pile of money. You know what would happen? The economy would collapse. No, it wouldn't. The economy would boom. No-nonsense financial talk. Weekday afternoons from 1 to 4 here on The Biz 1440. Portions of this program may have been pre-recorded. The views expressed on the following program do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. No! Come on, rise and shine. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? It's going to be a great year. 
Turn all the lights on and kill the noise. The Biz 1440 presents the best two hours of economic news and commentary. Is it safe? It's the King Banyan Show. This is a man. Your source for penetrating economic insight, razor-sharp analysis, and unflinching universal thought. The mind is a globe with whirling transient nodes of thought. Everything you need to maintain clarity and stay ahead of the economic curve. Now, here's Professor King Banyan. Welcome back, King Daniel Show, the Biz 1440. Thank you for listening today, and uh, thank you, uh, thank you for uh, also uh, subscribing to uh, uh, being a VIP club member at uh, TwinCitiesBusinessRadio.com. I mention it because the last hour of the show, with with both talking about the jobs report and uh, and Silicon Valley Bank, is one of those keepers that uh, we'll probably we'll probably play it a couple times as a. Uh, uh, We'll probably play it a couple times uh, as as a replay here uh, over the next uh, week or two, uh, because I think it was I, I, I think that's good stuff. But I'm really excited about this next hour. Um, as people know, I don't do politics on this show. I don't I don't want to talk about who's who's in power in D.C. I don't want to talk about this party's good, that party's bad, or anything like that. One of the things that we do on this show, we we tell people this is an economics and finance show. And one of the things I truly want to make sure I expose to, expose my listeners to is good economic thought and good economic good economic history. And when people practice bad economic history, I get I get be honest with you, I get torqued. I, I get I'm not happy when I see this. So I'm watching. Um, I'll recommend the show, although it's not it's it's one of those things you can't watch with your kids around. Um, I'm watching an Australian TV show on Hulu called Mr. In Between, which is fabulous. Okay, I just love it. And I and Hulu, I don't have Hulu Plus, so I get the ads and one of the ads that runs on it is for the 1619 project. Uh, and I'm like, what the heck? I thought that was a New York Times thing. What's that doing here? Well, it turns out they've made they've made shows about it. And about the same time, someone someone sends me an email about about the fact that there's a book about this by our by our next guest, uh, Dr. Phil Magnus, um, that is critiquing the 1619 project. And, it, and having read around it, I'm now going to realize he's been tilling the soil for this for quite some time. Uh, and so the Hulu series seems to maybe have given. I'm trying to remember. Uh, uh, first of all, welcome, uh, Dr. Magnus. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, and, and when was this? When was your book published? Uh, what What was the pub date on that? Uh, so that would have been uh, early 2020, and it was in the aftermath of the original 1619 project in the New York Times, which came out in August 2019. Well, isn't it fabulous when your book sort of gets a second tour because uh, the, the thing you're critiquing is actually now back in the news because because of a uh, of a documentary series on Hulu. So that's I mean, good for you. Um, and so I'm looking at this at the book from his website, philmagnus.com, M-A-G-N-E-S-S dot com. And I want to make sure you go you can go look at it, too, and look at look at a number of the pieces he's been writing of late uh uh, besides, besides being a director of uh, research at uh, director of research at uh, the uh, American Institute for Economic Research, he's been a he's been a professor at uh, Barry College down in Georgia, George Mason University, American University, both 
both in uh, the greater D.C. area. Um, and um, and your background really is, I think, right, in economic history. I love this stuff. It, yep, that's exactly it. I've worked on uh, the economic takeover of the 19th century and slavery for uh, coming up on two decades now. So you've been researching this long before Hannah Nicole Jones ever showed up on the scene to start giving her theories about this, right? So that's, I yeah, that's exactly the case. Yeah. Okay. So 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 Dr. Magnus, here's what I want. Here's what I want to do. I'm I'm currently working as a dean and have been dean now for nine years up here at Saint Cloud State in Minnesota. I have mm-hmm. not done. I have not taught economic development in a decade. So I'm badly out of practice. But when I taught economic development, I used to actually take peop- my students through sort of the, the, the history of the Industrial Revolution and get them to start from there to think about how do we talk about, about economies in the developing world. Many of my students are international students. Chances are they had never been exposed before that class to thinking about how the industrial revolution actually happens and 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 sort of the, the and sort of the, the 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 hockey stick of economic progress um so you're a historian in that area and i wanted to i wanted to sort of review with you um this whole piece so the the 1619 project argues that that the importation of slaves into the united states fundamentally changes and I, I don't want to use too strong a word but but is it too strong to say corrupts the American system is that is that a fair way for me to put that that's essentially what they're going for and in particular they're saying that free market capitalism is basically wedded at the hip to slavery and therefore tainted by slavery they take this all the way into the present day uh, so the Hulu series for example presents amazon.com warehouses as the successors and descendant institutions of slave plantations, uh, even showing pictures of the warehouses side by side with cotton fields. Wow. Okay, I haven't watched the series yet. I guess by the end of this show, I have a feeling you're going to talk me into actually watching it, which um, is going to require me to keep uh, medication nearby. But <laughs> we'll 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 figure it out. Um, I, I suspect, though, I'm going to end up having to watch it. Um, Anyway, thank you for doing the work of actually watching it, first of all. So let me start right back at the beginning. Um, So we bring slaves in the United States. They end up mostly being placed in the South because they are – it is seen that they they provide advantages for the creation particularly of agrarian economies, which are highly dependent on labor. How much of that did I get right? Uh, that's the general theory here that's at play. Uh, the caveat on that is it creates a path dependency in the southern economy as well. So, uh, you know, we start talking about economic uh, concepts such as opportunity cost. The South is much slower than the rest of the uh, country to industrialize. It's much slower to grow its big cities um, as a result of this path dependency from an agrarian slave-based production system. So... So, and that's true, and that mean, and that continues as as uh, you and I both would recognize. That continues well after the Civil War, right? So, so the difference in in standards of living between the North and South, say, I don't know, pick you you pick a number, but sometime before nineteen sixty, um, 
we're still, you know, magnitudes apart. Absolutely. And part of that's the legacy of slavery. Uh, there's even empirical evidence that some of the counties that had higher concentrations of slave plantations, they lag economically behind uh, other regions of the same states in, the, in their growth over the next hundred years or so after the Civil War. So in some sense, the, 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 the institution of slavery um, actually ends up being a burden on the places where it was most practiced. That's absolutely the case. It makes a few very large plantation owners extremely wealthy, a narrow group at the very top of the economic chain at the time that slavery exists and generally creates mass impoverishment, both of, uh, of the slaves, the people that are, are forced into labor on these plantation sites, and then also the general economy around them does not develop. So uh, uh, you get poor white farmers in the area as well that, uh, that simply don't have access to uh, what we would consider economic prosperity. And, and was there, therefore, um, more, more – I don't know how, if there's data to support this, Dr. Magnus, but was there – was there, therefore, more economic inequality among whites in the South than there were in the North? Absolutely. And you see some very, very wealthy plantation owners, the small group of elites that uh, control the political system. Uh, they are clearly the economic beneficiaries in that part of the country. Uh, and then both uh, enslaved African-Americans and poor white farmers in the area uh, that are seen as a, basically in abject poverty or just living in subsistence conditions at a time when uh, the North, with a free labor system, is growing much more rapidly in an economic sense. Right. And one of the points you made in a piece in National Review that I read as I got ready to do this particular piece, um, to, do, to do this talk with you, this is back from your piece called The 1619's Project Confusion, Project's Confusion on Capitalism. This was in National Review on February 12th, and I'll I'll use Twitter to send out the link to that article to uh, our listeners during the break. Um, one of the things that you point out there is that in as, that in fact we're using this particular piece to sort of not just attack. The, the you know the, the inequality in the South because I mean it's clear to me right that the the slave owners in the South probably deserve some some criticism some opprobrium from the rest of us for what for what happened at that time but it's being carried into entire places where it doesn't happen in fact I it, it, Dr Magnus on uh, on Powerline blog last night I read that in the Minnesota legislature. A reparations bill has been introduced into into the Minnesota legislature. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> right? Same thing in California, well, same thing in other parts of the country that uh, were not slave states. They entered into the Union as free states, and yet they're considering reparations. Right. But, but you know, I mean, even more to the point, Minnesota didn't become a state until 1858. Right. right? <laughs> So I mean, I mean, to, to, and that's a point John Hinderocker makes in in this piece. I think it was John that wrote it. Uh, that we weren't even a state till eighteen fifty eight, and somehow we became beneficiaries of slavery, and therefore we should make reparations. Yeah, yeah. It's a very strange I, 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 uh, line of causality that we're pushing in this project. So uh, what I liked about your piece. Uh, what I liked about your piece, and, and I, I haven't read your book, but I've read this piece, and what I really liked about it is connecting it to sort of the broader push 
of folks with a with a, a particular view of the economy that that you label Marxist. I I would I might have used progressive, but but uh, uh, but but yeah, we'll we'll stay with your with your terminology that the Mar- that this Marxist explanation is that the entirety of the American economy is is irreparably tainted. And, and the capitalism within it is irreparably tainted by slavery, whereas what I think we've said so far is it looks like it was really beneficial to a few people in the South. It didn't really benefit lots of other people in the South, and, uh, white people in the South, and it didn't seem to provide and, – and I'm unclear how it provided, uh, uh, it provided any benefit to people in the North. In fact, the North chose not to have that system and grew a lot faster. That's absolutely the case. And what you see okay. is this assertion of a past dependency that slavery, you know, they say several times in the series that slavery allegedly jump started the Industrial Revolution in the United States, uh, which is just completely backward. It's saying that the least economically developed portion of the country is supposedly the driver uh, for Amer- American wealth and industrialization in the 19th century. Uh, you, you know, you start to wonder something like this. Why didn't the South win the Civil War if it was this economic powerhouse that the 1619 Project uh, contends that it happened to be? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I need to make, take a quick break here, uh, and we'll be right back. We're visiting with uh, Phil Magnus from the, uh, from the American Institute for Economic Research, author of uh, the 1619 Project, a critique. You're listening here to The King Banyan Show on The Biz 1440. salmon fishing in Alaska at an amusement park in Green Bay or taking a stroll through Loring Park. We're where you are. Listen to the Biz 1440 at odyssey.com or with the free Odyssey app. Boys High School Hockey is on the air all weekend long right here on AM 1440 as Minnesota Score Radio presents the 2023 Boys State Hockey Tournament from the XL Energy Center in downtown St. Paul. Join us for our end-to-end coverage of the Class AA Tournament plus the Class A Semifinals and Championship from the opening puck drop until the final horn on Saturday night. That's the Minnesota Boys State High School Hockey Tournament presented by Minnesota Score Radio this weekend right here on AM 1440, your home for high school sports in the Twin Cities. Did you know you were kicking in your mommy's tummy before you were born? We were? Yep, I just learned at school that babies move and kick before they're even born. No No wonder we're so good at soccer. That's right, kids. A pre-born baby is moving about and even kicking just 14 weeks from conception. Hello, my name is Marianne Koharski. I'm the director of Pro-Life Across America. If you know someone who is pregnant or in need of information and alternatives to abortion, or you'd like to support the work of Pro-Life Across America, please call 1-800-366-7773, 1-800-366-7773, or visit our website at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Pro-Life Across America is non-political and totally educational. A baby's heart is beating 18 days from conception. Jim and I knew of Robbinsdale Women's Center, but didn't really know them until we toured. We were astonished by the amazing facilities and the genuine love and care the staff showed each woman that walked through the doors. That tour began our partnership with Robbinsdale Women's Center. 
Cindy and I have witnessed RWC's fiscal stewardship of our financial gifts. Being on the board has allowed me to see the careful discernment and prayerful thought that goes into every decision at Robbinsdale Women's Center. RWC receives no government funding and is debt-free. RWC owns all their assets and is 100% donor-supported. We're amazed at the number of abortion-minded women they serve. Weekly, five women, initially at risk of aborting their pregnancies, instead choose life. Join Cindy and I in supporting Robbinsdale Women's Center. Your gift will bring hope and life. Go to rwcinfo.org and help more mothers choose life. Let's make a difference. rwcinfo.org. Save 700 gallons of water and 250 pounds of salt this year with a new wet technology water softener from Commerce Water. Get $400 for your old softener. Commerce will haul it away too. Commerce.com. Commerce Water. Go to Commerce.com. Welcome back, King Banyan Show, The Biz 1440. Thank you for listening this hour with uh, Dr. Phil Magnus uh, from the American Institute for Economic Research, uh, author of The 1619 Project, a critique, uh, published in 2020, but now back in the back, probably um, uh, having a second run of good sales thanks to uh, Hulu releasing, uh, releasing a documentary series on The 1619 Project. And and before we left, uh, Doctor Magnus, we connected um, we connected this in some ways to Marxism, and I and it was your argument. And the more the more I think about it, and the types of arguments that uh, the supporters of the sixteen nineteen project are making, I'm coming around to your view, and I'll tell you why. Um, you actually makes and I tweeted the article from uh, the National Review to our listeners using our hashtag pound KBRS. Um, and one of the things that you pointed out, I don't know if it was in this piece, I think it might have been actually in a piece uh, you wrote a few years back, about how focused they are on the labor theory of value and trying to tie the use of, the use of slaves and slavery to increase the wealth of the United States. And in so doing... They do a lot of bad math. And, you know, I really hate bad math. What kind of bad math do they do? Oh, there's, it runs throughout the entire project and the underlying academic literature. Uh, so the basic start of the claim is this notion that cotton production is the major driver of the American economy in the antebellum era. And they use a book by a historian at Cornell University uh, named Ed Baptist as the basis of this claim. And what Baptist does is he points out that between 1800 and the Civil War, uh, the cotton sector of the American economy grew by about 400 percent, which is actually true. It's a, a real statistic. But he claims that the reason for this came from a refinement in the processes of beating and torture of the slaves to extract more value out of them. Uh, so that, that's his narrative. But if you go back to the, uh, the the economic studies that actually calculated these figures, they found a very different explanation. It was the discovery of newer and better street, uh, strains of cotton seed that produced more uh, 
uh, fiber. It uh, was easier to pick. It had uh, technological advantages in the sense that it was more resistant to disease. And that becomes the explanation of the growth of this sector, not this uh, slave whipping thesis that he's put forth. Yet Baptist takes this and he runs with it uh, to extreme, almost absurd proportions. Uh, the most notable being uh, he claims that on the eve of the American Civil War, the cotton industry, through its secondary and tertiary effects, uh, through its shipment into the textile industry of New England, uh, through its involvement in the financial sector, he basically purports to calculate that 50 percent of the United States GDP comes from cotton in the years before the Civil War. Problem is, if you go back to you know your macro 101 um, economics classes, they always talk about national income accounting, how GDP is calculated, the total output of the country in a given year. And we know from the basic definitions there that national accounts are, are only calculated from finished goods. Uh, you don't count the intermediary steps. And if you did so, you would be double and triple counting uh, without making an adjustment in the denominator. So what Baptist ends up doing is he gets... 50% of the U.S. economy attributed to cotton produced by slaves. Uh, the reality, if you go back and, and do the calculations properly, it's about 5 to 6% of the U.S. economy, a much, much smaller industry. Uh, so you've got a basic math error at the root of the academic literature that the 1619 Project promotes as gospel. Right. So this, this which uh, is, is referred to as a new history of capitalism, uh, as, you, as you write in your, in your piece, um, is yeah, it's a it's a it's an it's it's a principles of macro piece where we tell students, you know, if I sell you um, cotton seed that you put in the ground, the cotton seed does not count in GDP because because what count we don't consume seed. Seed is an input to produce the final output, right? And and so yeah, and so my background, by the way, is. I, I, I do teach I do teach uh, uh, economic development. I do teach uh, comparative systems only because we didn't have anybody else around to do it, and we're not a very big department. So someone's got to do that work, uh, uh, Doctor Magnus. That ended up being me. Uh, but um, but I teach I I've taught macro since the 1980s, and I think I've used that cotton example exactly as one of those as one of those cases. Not even re- recognizing that uh, someone ended up making that error and turning it into. Um, making turning it into a uh, a, a story about uh, about making it into a half um, making it into half of the um, half of GDP. They really said yeah. half of GDP. They they absolutely say that it's in Ed Baptist's book, and he's been pilloried for it. Uh, he's been critiqued in all the reviews, and yet has not deviated from this claim. Like refuses to engage his critics even. Okay, so. So there is some double counting. You know, another one that another piece that I think of as being sort of the the macro piece, and this is relies on my comparative things, on my comparative background. If slave, okay, we know right that the United States was the second latest country to give up slavery as an institution, right? Right. Um, the only one later than us was Brazil, yeah. um, right? So. Think about and talk about the growth in the 19th century of the United States relative to other countries that were engaged in capitalism. What what would you use as comparatives and how do we look relative to them? Did we grow faster than, say, Canada because we had slavery and they didn't? 
think, you know, there's the interesting thing is you have something of a natural experiment playing out on both sides of the border. And it turns out that Canada industrializes at roughly the same period of time. They have a railroad industry that emerges at, at basically the same time as the United States railroad industry. Uh, they have uh, industrialization in large cities growing up that have manufacturing in them at roughly the same time as the United States. Uh, the other comparison is Britain, which abolishes slavery in its colonies much, much earlier, uh, 1834. And then England proper doesn't really have slavery in it. So in fact, there's famous legal cases about that in the 1770s uh, that recognized England doesn't permit slavery in England's own borders. And yet it's industrializing in the same period, uh, actually a little bit earlier, uh, is when you start to see some of the factories pop up around uh, major cities in, in England. So this causal claim uh, that's specific to the United States, it just doesn't seem to play out uh, that way in other parts of the world during the same period in time. Okay, so so that 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 seems pretty uh, a pretty convincing story, does it not? That then that that Britain and Canada, Britain gives up doesn't have slavery in its own country from the 1770s. It abolishes it in its prov- in its colonies, um, which would have included Canada in the 1830s. And yet, all three countries have roughly the same growth. Do I have that story right? Uh, that's the basic trajectory here. Okay. And it gets even more so than that. Uh, you know, in the, in the American Civil War, there's a major disruption to the international cotton trade because there's a blockade. Uh, and then the Confederacy also restricts its cotton exports. As try, uh, they're trying the, the, uh, the carrot and stick approach to try to get uh, Britain and France and all these European powers to come to their aid. Uh, well, it turns out Britain and France just look elsewhere. They start getting their cotton from India and Egypt and some of the Caribbean islands, uh, other sources. And it turns out to be a very minimal disruption, even though the Confederacy had predicted that this was going to be their uh, their lever that draws the potential economic allies into the war. Okay, so so we have so far then we have a, a claim made that capitalism is rooted in slavery that that there is um and indeed you use a you you cite a term they use of racial capitalism right and and racial capitalism is the reason why the u.s grows so fast and yet it drops slavery later after a war and still has about the same growth rate as places which voluntarily gave up slavery slavery beforehand right so we have that we have data that's being used that is um, that it, that would, frankly, not pass your Econ 101 exam in terms of uh, counting intermediate inputs as like in the same way you count output toward a GDP number. Um, yep. You kind of get the feeling that they're trying to drive toward a particular conclusion, don't you? Um, <laughs> and and, and I, I, I mean that's not kind, but uh, one of the things that um, that I really dislike in economics is trying, and, and I'm setting up for our next segment here, Dr. Magnus, uh, is to talk about talk about the fact that there are there are a lot of people are trying to use monocausal explanations for world yeah, phenomena, and I, you know, who has two thumbs and hates monocausal explanations? This guy, <laughs> I I exactly. really don't like him at all, uh, and um, and and yet that seems to be what they're doing. So when I come back. I actually want to get to the positive case rather than 
talking specifically about uh, Nicole Jones and the 1619. Let's talk about what are the multiple explanations? What are the multiple factors that were involved in the development of this economy? So that I can help my listener when they hear these arguments say, nah, it's more complicated than that. You have to t- take, a, take, a, take a pause for a moment, and let's talk about all those different pieces. We're going to take a pause right now. You're listening to The King Banyan Show on The Biz 1440. Over-the-counter hearing aids are a new class of hearing devices regulated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and an option for adults 18 and over with perceived mild to moderate hearing loss. Get your hearing tested by an audiologist or hearing instrument dispenser. A tip sheet and shopping checklist is available on the Hearing Loss Association of America's website. Paid for by the Minnesota Commission of the Deaf, Deafblind, and Hard of Hearing, the Minnesota Broadcasters Association, and this station. China is attacking the U.S. patent system, stealing American innovations, and we are helping them do it. The Chinese Communist Party intends to surpass us and to be the world leader in innovative technology. Innovation Race, the shocking new movie from the Tea Party Patriots, exposes the truth. China will use our own technology to threaten our economic and military security. Dominating technology means you dominate the world itself. This is a race that we cannot afford to lose because we're not going to have a country. If China gains control over 5G technology with a flip of a switch, they could remotely turn off our phones, our cars, even our power grid. We've lost sight of what it is to protect this nation. We need to up our game. In today's high-tech world, there's no prize for second place. Watch Innovation Race. Available now on demand or DVD at SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What is dedication? I am the father of a nine-year-old little girl and a six-year-old little boy. And I find fatherhood both relentlessly challenging and relentlessly rewarding. My daughter is biological and my son is adopted. I love them both so much. From the morning when you wake up to putting them to bed at night and every moment in between, it really is so special. And boy, is it exhausting. One thing that I fear about being a parent is the future for my children. I think a parent's job is to protect our children, but also prepare them for the world so they become good, kind human beings. But I'm also hopeful that the future holds a more inclusive and compassionate world for them. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Join me to Rally to Re 100 Books. Reading is Fundamental invites you to visit rallytoread.org today to learn about our reading campaign. Join the pledge to read 100 books. Hear your child's favorite authors read their books and find activities to keep young readers motivated. Teachers can also enter the Rally to Read sweepstakes for a chance to win 100 books for their own school, subject to rules. Visit rallytoread.org today. King Banyan Show, The Biz 1440. We're visiting this hour with Dr. Phil Magnus from the American Institute for Economic Research, author of the 1619 Project, A Critique, 
And we're commenting because on this. He wrote the book in 2020 when the 1619 Project was first released by Hannah Nicole Jones and the New York Times. But they've now converted into a documentary that's available on Hulu, which I'm thinking I'm now going to have to watch. Okay. <laughs> Get, hey, I got to tell you, getting in the way of Mr. In-Between is kind of tough for me. Uh, it's a good show. But, but you know, I got to take one for the team. Um uh, Dr. Magnus, let me let me re- return to where I where we were before. And before I get to the monocausal explanations and why why I hate them, um, can you walk us through sort of the the way you've been talking about this as a Marxist philo- uh, ideology? I think is explained by the fact that they focus so much on a on what was termed in Marx's own books the the labor theory of value. Okay. Why don't you like think you're in my classroom and explain to people yeah. what the labor theory of value is and how it connects to the work that uh, the 1619 project is doing? Yeah, so it's basic root. The labor theory of value asserts that the value in a product is basically instilled by the labor performed to put it together, to assemble it, uh, to turn it into the finished good that goes to market for sale. And Marxist theory is all about this notion that the laborers themselves don't get paid. They don't receive uh, compensation at a level commensurate with the value that they have created by improving upon something. uh, The Marx theorists claim that the owners of capital, the owners of the factory, take the surplus value away from the laborer and uh, deny the laborer the fruits of his or her labor. And this is the reason why Marxism basically settles on a theory of labor exploitation as its core explanation. Uh, Now, Marx himself... And the classical versions of this all did it on class lines. So uh, the working class versus the uh, the ruling class or the elite was the uh, division line in Marx's original system. What uh, the 1619 Project does is it takes that version of exploitation theory and attempts to uh, pivot it over to racial lines. So this is where they get this theory called racial capitalism that comes from an offshoot of uh, Marxist thought that asserts that race is the dividing line of society. And uh, it, within that dividing line, you see examples of exploitation playing out in the way that laborers are treated, but exploitation occurring differently in a different strata based on whether you're black or white. Okay, so so th- that focus on the labor theory of value, it, it, it really struck me when, I, when you told the story of how the explanation for the growth in, growth in cotton production wasn't technology, wasn't, you know, like, like new seed uh, 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 that's more, uh, more disease-resistant. Yes, there was GMO cotton the first half of the 19th century. Right. Get over it. Right? Get over that. Uh, there was the cotton gin, right, uh, uh, which, which has some value, too. And the fact that, that, you know, over time, these folks who had access to slaves also engaged in purchasing a lot of technology too if slaves were the way you got richer why wouldn't they have just bought more slaves and, right, and so right. that gets me to this this issue that i really have with 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 the way i hear these arguments and i work in academia have for 40 years you've worked in academia a lot, lot shorter time than i have but but you're still a young guy uh, but <laughs> But you're uh, you, you've been around around these conversations that they try to drive everything they have into a particular single explanation of the world. Um, 
Arnold Kling, you may know you may know him. You you probably ran in the same circles he ran back when you were yep. at George Mason. Um, uh, uh, we've had him here at St. Cloud. Uh, he, I love him. Um, when in his book, the three axes of uh, of uh, the three axes of, of politics or political language, I'm forgetting the full title of the book, three languages of politics. Pardon me. Um, talks about that progressive worldview where it's basically you just view the entire world as being as consisting of oppressors and the oppressed, and every social problem in the world is can be explained by just figuring out who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed. Okay. I think the thing we need to tell our our listeners is it's more complicated than that. So let's go to where we started with the thinking about the the industrial revolution might be too broad a term, but just thinking about the explanations for growth for the Britain, Canada, the United States, which we've talked about. How do you describe there being multiple factors in that growth? Right. That you can't just use that. Maybe it's not the best way to think about things by just thinking about some monocausal explanation. Well, that's exactly it. I often joke that if your only tool is a hammer and sickle, everything looks like exploitation of the proletariat. And that's the world that the Marxists seem to I'm stealing into. that. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they're very much a monocausal uh, theory of economic development that they're advancing. What it turns out is the world is much, much more complex, and economies themselves are, are in fact, irreducibly complex. Uh, impossible for us to even fully grasp and wrap our minds around on, on how many transactions are occurring at any given moment, uh, how individual subjective preferences are manifesting. Uh, so the question becomes what jumpstarts this great enrichment? That takes place from roughly about the mid 1700s uh, to the current day. Because if you go back and into ancient times, slavery existed in the ancient world. We know this from biblical records. We know this from uh, uh, ancient Rome and ancient Greece. We know it from time immemorial in every society across the world. Why didn't they industrialize uh, in the Roman Empire as opposed to today? Or why didn't the Spanish Empire in the New World, which had a much more pernicious and earlier slave system, industrialize? before the English colony. Uh, so these are open questions that we want to put to the monocausal theorists that reduce everything to slavery. But what it turns out is you actually need several different ingredients for economic development. Uh, one of those is robust institutions, uh, systems of law to mitigate property rights disputes and contract disputes uh, that actually create some stability in exchange. So if a merchant knows that they can go to a new port that they never sailed to before, but there's a stable system of law there, they understand that their contracts will be honored and recognized. Uh, Some of it also gets back to uh, uh, recognition that property rights are stable over time. In other words, you don't have predation, whether it's by the king or a dictator or by an enemy power coming in and invading and stealing your stuff. Uh, On top of that, there are cultural and ethical norms that seem to emerge around the uh, mid-1700s uh, to the present day, this is the Deirdre McCloskey thesis yes. uh, that basically says that the bourgeois class, the uh, the merchant class, the uh, the bankers, the uh, people that are engaged in trade, move from the periphery of society. Uh, you know, you go back to the Middle Ages, uh, merchants that travel between towns are not seen as the centerpiece of uh, social organization. Rather, it's the feudal lord, it's the king and his castle, and then the estate of the serfs. They're fixed in one place. And as merchants start to move into the center point of exchange, 
there becomes a greater culture, cultural valuation of the function that they're providing for society. Uh, and basically, as that emerges over the, cross, uh, over the course of the uh, 16 and 1700s, uh, you start seeing uh, social relationships shifting from the king in the castle and the serfs on the land to uh, exchange between cities and through all these other uh, professions and functions that were previously considered as uh, on the periphery of economic life move to the center. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of factors that come together all at once uh, in very complex ways, uh, and it tends to emerge in parts of the world that have robust systems of law, uh, enforcement of contracts, enforcement of property rights, political stability. So constitutional government turns out to be a factor and evaluation of people that are engaged in production and trade and exchange uh, rather than this simple serf and medieval lord or uh, feudal lord relationship that had previously dominated Europe. Yeah, I I was I was I was provoked this morning. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw it. I'm uh, Tyler Cohen uh, at Marginal Revolution posted a, a reflection on a new book out. Uh, maybe it's already in your pile. Colonialism: A Moral Reckoning by Nigel Bigger. Um, hmm. And uh, and it's a new book. It's basically a history. It's a it's it's the history of the British Empire in some sense and its colonial behavior. And I mean, he, he, and, and it's 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 lovely because a lot of the places one person could have critiqued our conversation about comparing the U.S. to Britain and Canada. It's like, yeah, but they were all British system, you know, and, and so that you're not you're, you haven't introduced a bunch of the other ones. We could, so so and and Tyler actually does make the point. Well, yeah, it worked out really well for some places. Singapore and Hong Kong it worked out great. Malaysia worked out pretty well. But what about Sierra Leone? Right. Sierra mm-hmm. Leone, you know. You almost want to say, well, Britain really didn't work out, didn't work well for them. Um, I think my point then is, is simply, e- even the the even the ones I'm attracted to, the 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 British system that promotes uh, the common law and property rights and and the fact right. that you're not going to be subject to predation, even that's not a perfect. We don't want an alternative model causal explanation, even when it's the one that you and I. Dr. Magnus might say, that's the one I'm Absolutely. probably closer to believing, right? Yeah, the, you know, it's a necessary condition to have a stable system of law, but it's not sufficient in itself to explain the emergence of a, uh, a viable economic system. Right, right. Um, let me let me take one more break. I got a, like one or two more questions for you. I want to thank you so much sure. for uh, giving us a whole hour of your time today, Dr. Magnus. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. We're visiting with Phil Magnus. He is uh, director of research at the American Institute for Economic Research and uh, and uh, author of the of the sixteen nineteen project to critique. Uh, we'll be right back here on the King Banyan Show on the Biz fourteen forty. The Biz fourteen forty KYCR Golden Valley. Turn market volatility into opportunity today by investing with the big institutions, not against them. Many people are getting taken advantage of by Wall Street. Learn why their returns are so much better than the average novice 401k investor. Learn the skills to be a better steward of your own money. Call for a free in-center or virtual investing class today at 952-814-4410. Call Online Trading Academy at 952-814-4410 or go to learnwithota.com. 
Can your IRA stand up to the next financial crisis that our top economists are saying is at our doorsteps? By allocating a percentage of your IRA into physical gold and silver with a tax-free rollover, you can diversify and safeguard your holdings from turbulent markets and economic downturns by putting your IRA back on the gold standard. Find out how to safeguard your assets with a tax-free rollover with a Genesis Gold IRA, the only IRA that can hold physical precious metals. Call now for your free gold and silver report. Protect your IRA today with one simple phone call and learn how to qualify for up to $10,000 in free silver. Call Genesis Gold Group, empowering faith-driven stewardship. 800-504-1123. 800-504-1123. That's 800-504-1123. Every day. The men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, We always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all. The few, the proud, the Marines. The Ramsey Show. I don't have credit card debt. I don't have student loan debt. I don't have car payments. I'm under control and I got a pile of money. You know what would happen? The economy would collapse. No, it wouldn't. The economy would boom. Weekdays from 1 to 4 p.m. Live on the Biz 1440. Soaking up the sun in Fiji. Walking through the Sculpture Garden in Minneapolis. Or standing in awe at the Grand Canyon. We're where you are. Listen to the Biz 1440 at odyssey.com or with the free Odyssey app. Perform songs from her new. Okay, thank you. Uh, back, King Banyan Show, the Biz fourteen forty. Uh, apparently, the board gave us a little hiccup. Uh, we're visiting with Dr. Phil Magnus uh, from the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, about his uh, about this the 1619 project, which is now a new documentary on Hulu, more than probably more advertising than I should give this thing based on what I've heard so far. But but uh, Dr. Magnus, um, I think the point I was trying to make uh, bef- before that you've helped me with so much is that is that any monocausal explanation, be it you know. Um, Racial capitalism in the or the the progressive view of capitalism, let's say, on the one side, or on the other side, the the um, the belief that you know private property rights are everything. The world's just more complicated than that, right? Um, there are yeah, lots absolutely. of factors that get that get involved, right? And 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 so, I think that's the duty of folks, and I think it's the duty of folks like you and me who who present ourselves as being public scholars to be careful about how we make that argument. May I, you know, 
what kind of advice would you give to my listeners who get into our, get into discussions with people who maybe have that monocausal view, particularly with my listeners, it would be, they're likely yeah. to have that argument from the left side of the spectrum, the, the folks that might be uh, attracted to the 1619 Project. Yeah. Well, actually, start with the – there is a recognition we have to make that slavery is a brutal and terribly exploitative system. Uh, this is a matter of history. That's not inconsistent with uh, the evidence that we have. Uh, the, the problem is the way that places like the 1619 Project interpret that. And they try to use it into an explanation for economic growth uh, when, in fact, what we see is evidence of the opposite effect, that slavery is a retardant on economic growth. Uh, everywhere that slavery is very prominent in world history seems to coincide with slow stagnation. It seems to coincide with a lack of industrialization and development. It coincides with uh, uh, basically the American South being an economic backwater for uh, most of the country's early existence. So, so thank you. I mean, I think that's I think that's that's the most important piece for people to get is is that is that that's complicated. I I still am trying to get my head around the reason I'm going to watch this is trying to connect it to places like Amazon and I, I to an Amazon warehouse. I'm old <laughs> enough to remember when my students were were all attracted to uh, a band, uh, particular bands that had particular political views. So U2, where Bono actually ends up being a fairly complicated, a guy who recognizes the, 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 the complications of, of life and economic development and ends up with, with more sophisticated views. But early on, pretty hard Marxist. Rage Against the Machine right. is the one I remember the most. Oh, my gosh. Um, my students were, were all were, were all over that. I'm a big fan of Radiohead. Tom York is 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 a lefty. My uh, my my colleague Mitch Berg's a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. Ditto. Right. What I mean, what is it about that viewpoint that attracts so many people? I guess is, you must have spent some time thinking about this, right? Yeah, yeah. It's an easy, simplistic explanation of the past. Uh, it's offering uh, a very fixed formula that says, you know, all we have to do is end worker exploitation and then utopia arrives. Uh, it's something that reduces every problem that's encountered in society to this very simplistic viewpoint Well, it must be worker exploitation. Uh, therefore, that becomes the one thing that you focus on targeting and solving. Uh, so simple explanation and a promised simple solution that, as we know from the history of the 20th century, every time they've attempted to implement it, ends up in massive destruction, uh, genocide, uh, body counts in the tens of millions, uh, starvation, famines, uh, these horrendously complex five-year and ten-year plans of industrialization that because they're, uh, uh, they're all centrally planned from the top down uh, turn out to be disastrous and, and set countries back economically when they attempt to execute on them. So simple answers. Uh, for problems that they diagnose, a proposed simple solution that misses the complexity, and that's a formula for disaster. Yeah. So I want to make sure before before we have to go, I want to make sure first of all give the website philmagnus.com to find him. If you're listening to us, if, if you're listening to us and you're watch watch our our Twitter feed, uh, just using the hashtag pound kbrs, you can find the article that uh, kind of got me started uh, with the idea that we would talk today. Uh, from uh, from National Review a few weeks ago, uh, I encourage you to read it. It's lengthy, but it is worth it. 
I'm going to say. There's a whole lot in there. It's documented well. He's provided links to all the pieces that he's talking about, so you can you can follow along with it's it. I mean, to me, it it, it reads like someone that that is it actually engaged in scholarship. So I thank so thank you for giving us that, Doctor Magnus. The, uh, I guess my last question is: So what are you working on now? I mean, I mean, yeah, your your book's had another uh, has had another uh, boost thanks to uh, Hulu. Uh, what's the, what's next in uh, Phil Magnus's world? Uh, all sorts of projects. Uh, the one that's probably most related to uh, the economic history of slavery is I've got a long-term project to look at all the ways that various governments across the world subsidized and propped up the slave system, because that's the real story. And this is something Adam Smith pointed out back in 1776 in The Wealth of Nations. He says that slave owners, wherever they exist, happen to get themselves elected to the parliament, elected to the legislature, and then they start voting themselves resources from the public treasury. Uh, that's the real story that I want to tell uh, because it shows that the, quite a bit of this injustice is not the market sector. Uh, it's actually government policy, bad government policy that sustained and perpetuated the system at ways that were um, really at odds with economic development. Well, great. Well, I look forward to seeing that, and I, I thank you for I thank you for the hour today, uh, and uh, best of luck to you, uh, Dr. Phil Magnus uh, from the American Institute for Economic Research, and uh, in, in his book uh, again one last time, the 1619 Project to critique, uh, and, and I recommend that to you. Thank you for your time today, sir. Thank you, Spencer, for spending time with us as well. Uh, I've got my eyes open looking at uh, at the at the Silicon ba- Valley Bank situation uh, at, at the moment, but we'll be back next week with more news on that, and of course it'll be uh, the inflation report as well here on the King Banyan Show on the Biz fourteen forty. I've got a math question for you. When you add tolerance, subtract prejudice, and multiply efforts to treat one another with respect, what do you get? Less division. And school sports have it down to a science. Looking for an example of what can happen when we realize there's more that unites us than divides us? Look no further than high school sports in Minnesota. This message presented by the Minnesota State High School League and the Minnesota Interscholastic Activities Administrators Association. Boys High School Hockey is on the air all weekend long right here on AM 1440 as Minnesota Score Radio presents the 2023 Boys State Hockey Tournament from the XL Energy Center in downtown St. Paul. Join us for our end-to-end coverage of the Class AA Tournament plus the Class A Semifinals and Championship from the opening puck drop until the final horn on Saturday night. That's the Minnesota Boys State High School Hockey Tournament presented by Minnesota Score Radio this weekend right here on AM 1440, your home for high school sports in the Twin Cities. I was nine weeks along and didn't know what else to do. I felt helpless, and I didn't want to leave it up to her, but I didn't know what to do or say. I didn't know there were other options available. I didn't know it was a baby with a beating heart at 18 days. Hello, my name is Marianne Koharski. I'm the director of Pro-Life Across America, the Billboard People. So often we get calls just like this from men and women seeking help and alternatives. Our 800 hotline connects callers to the services they need for pregnancy, adoption, as well as post-abortion assistance. If you know someone who is pregnant or in need of confidential counseling or would like to support the work of Pro-Life Across America, please call 1-800-366-7773 or check us out on the web, Pro ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. ProLife Across America is educational, non-political, and tax deductible. A baby's heart is beating 18 days from conception. ProLife Across America.
What is dedication? My biggest fear in the middle of my addiction was that my kids wouldn't have a father. I overdosed on heroin, and I lived. And I started thinking, you know what? This isn't my story. My desire to change had finally outweighed my desire to stay the same. I felt powerless for so much of my life. It's important to me that my kids are empowered and truly believe that if, if they can think it, they can do it. I definitely had to become a better man to be a better father. For the first time, I, I finally feel like I'm exactly where I should be, where I want to be. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.